Tonight we're going to look at a view of Scripture that's in error. We'll be looking at Calvinism. Calvinism. Many of you may be aware of what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you are not. But by the time our study is over, I think everybody will have a better understanding of this particular religious error and why it's important for us as Christians, especially in this country, to have a good grasp of what the Bible has got to say concerning this particular matter. Let's look a little bit at the importance of a study like this. Error always has a way of coming back. It's amazing. You know, it's sort of like termites. You have a problem with termites, and you may have to have your house sprayed uh, initially and then sprayed as a matter of upkeep every several months. There are many people in the business of pest control. Well, as Christians, we need to think of ourselves not only as truth-tellers, but error, error, control people. So, Calvinism is one of these areas. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, speak of the need to try the spirits whether they are from God. And it deals with the spirit of truth as opposed to the spirit of error. When you think about Calvinism, 40 or 50 years ago, certainly when I was a young person and even when I began preaching, Calvinism was not in vogue in this country. However, with the coming of the 21st century, and you'll notice this bullet point, Calvinism's influential rise in the 21st century. Have any of you ever heard of John MacArthur or of David Jeremiah? They're well-known Calvinist preachers. Have you heard of John Piper? Maybe not, but many have a very well-known Calvinistic preacher and writer. All of the Baptist seminaries, to my knowledge, are currently very much influenced by Calvinistic thinking. The Baptists are the second largest religious group as far as a denomination goes, after Catholicism in this nation. And if the second largest religious group in this nation has in its schools of preaching and education for Bible a strong commitment to Calvinism, then you and I, as God's people, need to be aware of that. Most of the books that are done by major denominational publishers have a Calvinistic bent to them. Now, what 
we're thinking about here and we're aiming for as God's people is not simply reformation, but restoration of New Testament Christianity. Those that are Calvinist will often believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible, but they are into a form of reformation and not restoration. Let's just reform existing religious groups and admit to disagree, all love God and respect His Word and go on. Reformation as opposed to restoration. Churches of Christ, people who are truly members of the body of Christ, ought to emphasize restoration. In dealing with anyone, some basic passages to think about concerning error. Be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. The passage does not say be as poisonous as a rattlesnake and as silly as a dove. I said something like that a week or two ago. It still applies even when dealing with religious error. Be ready to give an answer of the hope that we have in Christ. Yet with reverence and godly fear. 1 Peter 3.15 Contend earnestly for the faith... I will tell you what, in a city the size of Midland with as many church buildings as there are, I think I would be safe to say the vast majority of these buildings would have a belief in Calvinism. Godly tips for dealing with error. I recall hearing years ago, and I thought it was rather extreme then, and I think it's wrong now. I recall hearing a well-known preacher say that when it comes to the truth, I don't have any friends. Well, when it comes to the truth, you better have friends. First and foremost, Jesus. The Holy Spirit. And the Father. Thankfully, when it comes to wanting to say what is right in dealing with error, we'll also have the company of other people that are concerned about the truth, but are also concerned that error be dealt with in a God-honoring manner. Let me share with you these five principles. Number one. In dealing with anyone religiously, but especially when you believe them to be in error, Steve, practice the golden rule, which says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Do you think that you would want others to represent you correctly? Do you think that you would want others to call you an idiot or ignorant 
Therefore, the practice of the golden rule is applicable in all relationships, especially when we are dealing with people with whom we have a strong disagreement religiously. The golden rule. Secondly, the Ephesians 4.29 principle. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but such as is useful to edification, that it might minister grace to the hearers. Did you know there was a time in the history of this country when people could have very different religious views, discuss them in a public forum, and the men who did the speaking, one on each side of the position, would stay in the same room overnight. I suspect they were careful about how they spoke to one another, don't you? We need a better practice of this principle in all of our relationships, but especially as it concerns dealing with religious error. No corrupt speech, but such as is useful to building up that it might minister grace to the hearers. Third, the Ephesians 4.15 principle. Speaking the truth in love. Note first the message, truth. Note secondly the spirit or attitude Love. I have often said that truth without love is hard. And it's also hard to listen to. But love without truth is soft and superficial. In dealing with religious error, the Ephesians 4.15 principle cannot be overlooked. Everybody with me so far? If we can talk about evangelistic emphasis, we are talking about souls here. We're talking about people. So we better be careful about how we are treating someone who is a creation of God in our approach and in our words. Can I get an amen there? Thank you. The Jesus principle number four. The Jesus principle. The Jesus principle is this. Jesus was moved with compassion when he thought about people. Matthew 9 and verse 36. He was moved with compassion, yet he was completely unafraid of dealing with error. 
That's not always easy to do simultaneously, is it? He was moved with compassion when he saw people. He really cared for them and their souls, and yet no one was more firm in dealing with error. Have you ever read Matthew 23? Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! So the Lord had the perfect blend of light and heat. You and I will struggle with that sometimes. You ever have a whole lot of heat and you're not able to speak in a way that reflects the light the way you should? Maybe we all can connect with that at some time to our shame. But the Jesus principle is that of compassion while having a firm desire to deal with error. Paul would say, let God be true, let every man be a liar. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here is somebody whose heart's desire was that Jews would be saved in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. But no one holds their feet to the fire in a manner of speaking, saying, of all people who should respond to Jesus, it ought to be you since he's the one that fulfills the Old Testament. Fifthly, the principal principle. By that I mean tongue-in-cheek. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you speak to someone who is in religious error about their religious error, be motivated by compassion for their soul and the desire to honor and glorify God. It is not about winning an argument. It is about loving God and people that He made in His image and making sure they understand His message. You ever stop to think that there's not a person here that hasn't been guilty of doctrinal ignorance? Anybody here never been? You've been guilty of ignorance ever doctrinally? How about misunderstanding of God's Word? There are many people in the religious world who may be ignorant and may have misunderstandings too, Steve. And so as Adam was talking about a lot today, patience, long-suffering, 2 Timothy 4 And verse 2, and here's the golden rule because we would hope that God would be patient with us and that others would be too so that we could grow and mature. Amen? Defining Calvinism. Let me tell you what Calvinism is not. Calvinism is not invented by John Calvin. Really, Calvinism was first propagated by an individual by the name of Augustine. Or, as people would say in West Texas, Augustine. 
Augustine, but it's Augustine. Augustine lived from about 350 uh, to 430 A.D., and he was a well-known church historian. John Calvin came along about a thousand years later. As a matter of fact, in the 16th century, around 1500 to uh, 1565, what Calvin did, you know, some people just are, are organizers. Calvin was a person who gave better organization to the religious error called Calvinism. And he arranged it into the form that we have come to know as the tulip. More about that in the very next couple of slides. But Calvinism was not invented by John Calvin. Secondly, Calvinism is not just another way of talking about faith only. Faith only, you know, just accept Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Calvinists believe that. But they are not the only ones who believe that. For example, Methodists are not Calvinistic. But Methodists believe that you need to accept Jesus into your heart to be saved. So, here's the idea. Calvinism is not just another name for faith only, even though Calvinistics... Uh, thinking espouses, believes in faith only. More people believe it who aren't Calvinists than just them. Reformed theology, that's a big word that basically means, a big expression, Presbyterianism. Here's a way to look at this, without me getting in too much detail with you tonight. All Reformed theologians, all Reformed people are Calvinist, but not every Calvinist is Reformed. All Reformed people are Calvinist, but not every Calvinist is Reformed. And by that I mean people who are Reformed believe in the tulip, but they believe in some other things too that distinguish them from just being Calvinist. And here's something interesting. One size fits all. No. That's not true of Calvinism. Would you like for someone to speak of churches of Christ so broadly that they do it in a way that doesn't represent what you think the Bible really says? Now think about churches of Christ in Midland, Texas. So we would want people to be fair. So let's make an effort to to understand that, oh, that person's just a Calvinist. Well, that's true, but there are people that call themselves five-point Calvinists. The tulip, there are four-point Calvinists, and there are three-point Calvinists. More about that as we move on. One size doesn't fit all. Now, here's Calvinism's basic beliefs. Get this. 
For you note takers, put this down somewhere, please. When we talk about the basic beliefs of Calvinism that make it the system of error that it is, the first basic belief flaw is this, a flaw concerning the nature of God. A flaw concerning the nature of God. And if you look at the first bullet point here, I put it as simply as I could. God causes absolutely everything to happen. The absolute omnicausal sovereignty of God. God is so sovereign. He's such a king, he's so mighty and powerful that God, according to Calvinism, causes everything to happen. Everything. No exceptions. And to say that that does not happen is an indictment, according to Calvinists, on the knowledge and power of God. Now, let that sink in just a little bit. Because I have often said in preaching and teaching, when you are examining a person's religious beliefs, think long and hard about their view of God. The Bible teaches that God's the king. Revelation 19, 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The word of God teaches God's power and knowledge. But when you look at the second bullet point, the Bible also teaches the free will of men. We have to balance what God's Word says about His sovereignty because as members of the body of Christ, we believe in His sovereignty. He's the King. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. We shouldn't take away from that thought in any way. The Bible teaches it. But the Bible also teaches the free will of men. Have you ever heard somebody say when a drunk driver takes out maybe a young mom and wife and two small children in an automobile accident? Well, it was just God's will. I don't see how Scripture supports that at all. I believe that God is the king and the ruler. But I also see that God teaches that individuals have a will that allows them to make choices and to have to deal with the consequences of bad choices. And one who gets drunk and takes to the road has not only made the bad choice of getting drunk, but of taking to the road. 
by giving men and women the right to choose, the freedom to choose actions, God permits us to live with the consequences of wrong actions. Have you ever grieved over how people make bad choices? Ever been up all night about some of your own dumb, bad choices? I know our God doesn't sleep. He's the king. But I'll tell you what, I'm sure sometimes God has grieved over our bad decisions and the consequences they're going to have on the innocent. Not only is there a problem with their view of God that is flawed, as much as I appreciate talking about God's sovereignty and greatness, emphasizing His glory, being passionate about those things, there's also a flawed view of sin and salvation. Right now I'm dealing with the most fundamental things. A flawed view of God and a flawed view of sin and salvation. Let me begin with sin. The Calvinistic view of sin is that we are so royally messed up that none of us, none of us have anything in us that is not corrupted and ugly. None of us have anything in us that is not uncorrupted and ugly and stained. The Bible teaches the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? The awfulness of sin. But here's the idea. You and I are so depraved, totally so, that there is nothing whatsoever that anyone can ever do. We're wholly corrupted. That might be called good. Related to this, the view of salvation. And if you notice, salvation is unconditional. And here's the thing. If you're so bankrupt, there's absolutely not any possibility of good in you. God's going to have to do an awful lot if you're going to have any hope. Now listen, because part of this doesn't sound all that bad, does it, biblically? Do all of us need God's grace? Granted, sin is an awful, hideous thing, and because of it we are lost But the idea that salvation is unconditional in every way means you have to have God act on you. 
before you can be saved. And if God doesn't act on you, there's no way for you to be saved. This is the core of Calvinism. Now look at this tulip you've heard me mentioning. And really all that it is is an acronym. And I move quickly here because of the time element. T stands for total depravity, which I have already described. Generally speaking, they will go to passages like Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5, Psalm 58, verse 3, that talks about being conceived in iniquity, conceived in sin. By way of quick rebuttal, we're dealing with a book of poetry And just as one doesn't turn to the book of Revelation and make it overly literal, we need to be careful about going to the book of Psalms and literalizing every aspect of it when it is a type of literature we know to be poetry. Surely we're talking about the awfulness of sin and how that that people become acquainted with sin uh, from a very early point in life. It just seems to surround humanity. Other passages will say, The soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.4, Ezekiel 18.20. If total depravity is true, here's a couple of things to consider. Just from the Old Testament, what's a person going to do with Noah? Genesis 6, 8. He comes after Adam and Eve. If he somehow has Adamic sin and he's totally depraved, how is it that he sees grace and favor with God? How about Enoch? How about Elijah? Why does Jonah go preach to the Ninevites, if they are totally depraved, God needs to do something to them before they can know know God. Just questions to think about. Unconditional election. What that means is this. God chose at the beginning of time who will be saved and who will be lost. Steve Horton over here may have been stamped as saved by God at the beginning of time. Mike Vestal may have been stamped as lost. And if Steve is stamped as saved by God, there's nothing that he can ever do to be lost. It's unconditional. And if I'm stamped to be lost, there's nothing I can do to be saved. It is called double predestination. God arbitrarily chooses who will be saved, and who will be lost. Not all Calvinists believe that God arbitrarily chose who will be lost, but all Calvinists believe God arbitrarily, individually chose who will be saved. Limited atonement. What that means is this. Jesus died only for those that God stamped saved. The problem with that view is the emphasis in Scripture on the world and the emphasis upon all. 
God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Alan read, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. It is difficult to make irresistible, uh, excuse me, limited atonement really work in Scripture. And most of our Baptist friends reject this because they believe in preaching to everybody. They're closer to the truth in this regard. Irresistible grace, since Steve is stamped saved, you can live like an infidel. And by the way, Augustine did and wrote a volume called The Confessions of Augustine where he talked about his former life before he got his act together, as we might say. But he just couldn't resist God's grace even though he was living like the devil. God did something to him. God works through his word 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Through belief of the truth, the message embraced. The final part of this tulip, P, once saved, always saved. Notice how all this is unconditional and you are wholly and completely without freedom of will You're depraved, totally so, Curtis. Now, we're lost without Jesus, but there's a difference. There's no good thing even possible or conceivable in a person who's lost. There's an awful lot of people who are lost that have done me good turns through the year. How about you? unconditional election that if I'm not one that God chose, there's nothing I can do. Limited atonement that Jesus died only for the elect. One well-known Calvinist said this, God loves all people in some ways, but He loves some people in all ways. How do you make that really coincide with God would have all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Once saved, always saved. How about the if passages? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 among others. You have fallen from grace. Now listen. Before I leave this point, Reject the tulip, but do not get so reactionary you become imbalanced spiritually. Reject total depravity, but believe in the awfulness of sin, all sin, my sin, my family's sin, the world's sin. Reject unconditional election, 
But thank God that he predestined a way at the beginning of time for people to be saved. That involves conditions. Reject unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement, rather. But embrace the unlimited possibility for all being saved. For all. Reject irresistible grace. Uphold the greatness of God's grace. Sometimes, I really think this is true, that some brethren among us over the years have gotten so caught up in defeating religious error in Calvinism that they've ended up denying things the Bible actually says. And how about this? Deny the perseverance of saints, but uphold that we can have assurance of salvation. And that's where I can prove my point. The one I just said. That some among us have gone so far that maybe they don't give anyone assurance. The Bible does. Fatal flaws, and then we'll close. Thank you for your patience. I'll give you some of the time back next Sunday night. A question to really think about when it concerns Calvinism is this. Does God really love all people? Does he really love all people? And as a Christian, I'm going to say, Absolutely, he does. Because Jesus died for all. And because the sin of any and every individual can be forgiven by Jesus. No one is so bad they cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus in responding to the will of God. Does God really love all people? Yes. Christ died for us. Secondly, does God's sovereignty destroy all freedom of will for humanity? I believe the Calvinist God is too small here. And I'm going to tell you why. I think our God is big enough and great enough and awesome enough that he can be all-powerful and all-knowing and still give you and me a choice and freedom of will. And I'll be humble enough to admit that I cannot explain that as fully as I would like, okay? But I don't think I have to because the Bible doesn't need us to reconcile friends because the sovereignty of God and the free will of men, it's not, they're not enemies. They're friends. In producing people who love God and belong to God and serve God. And this is an important one. I had Karen type up my slides and... and 
I, I asked the question, is it possible to place a theological system above Scripture itself? And she typed yes, and she was about to take it off. I said, don't do it, leave it. It's possible to place a theological system above God. But the idea is knowledge puffs up, love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. That God is to be loved with all of our heart and soul and mind. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. To love a theological system more than God. Do you reckon the Pharisees loved a theological system more than God? Reckon? Do you think that the Mormons loved their theological system more than God? I'd have to say so. I'm sure there's some very moral Mormons. How about Jehovah's Witnesses? How about our Muslim friends? Well, let me take another step. Do you think it was possible for some people to love the Old Testament system more than Jesus, the fulfillment of it? And Jim, there was truth in that system. It came from God. But they were missing the fact, as important as the Old Testament was, it was pointing to something. Is hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized a system? Yep. Is it true? Is it right? It's possible to emphasize a system and lose who the system brings us to. I don't want any part of the system. And I love system. And I preach faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And I will to the day I die. But I will only do that because that's part of God's way for bringing people to Him. Let's not get so... You know, premillennialists, you ever have people knock on your door and they want to talk about the end of time? Hey, man, I want to talk about the fact that the world stinks right now and I really need some help. That sounds like what a lot of people need to hear, don't you think? That the world is going through a rotten time? People that are more devoted to their system than they are to God. It can happen even with a good system. In this case, it's happened with one that has some good in it. But they've lost sight of God. And he's too small. Take that as a lesson for us too. We might be guilty of the same thing. Let us stand and sing.